Hello, and welcome to The Worst Bestsellers, where we read about investigating without the internet so you don't have to. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. And for this episode, we read A is for Alibi by Sue Grafton. Joining us to discuss this long-lived mystery series is scientist and champagne aficionado Sarah. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Yes, welcome back. You might remember Sarah from um, discussing Inferno with us. The Dan Brown book. And, most and also R.L. Stein yeah. um, with Goosebumps and Fear Street. While Renata was in her sadness yeah, I was like, I don't remember that. that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this book, um, yeah, I for me, Sue Grafton is most notable for two reasons. One of which is around the time I had my first public library job is when W came out. And W is called W is for Wasted. And so... I had so many people who would, like, call or come up to the desk and be like, oh, do you have the newest Sue Grafton? What is it? And I had to get to say W is for Wasted, which I thought was hilarious. And then also, <laughs> uh, my grandma loved these books. And so I'm a little like, are these even worse bestsellers? Because, like, my grandma was a classy lady and she read them. So in my mind, they were like, I don't know. I don't think of them as, like, trashy. I think of them as just, like... My grandma books. I, uh, my association with Sue Grafton and this series is somebody asked David Levithan in an interview about the Lover's Dictionary what he's going to do when he gets to the end of the alphabet. And his response is, Sue Grafton will get there first, so I'm going to take my lead from her. <laughs> and that made me laugh really hard. <laughs> yeah, I, um, so I read through I can't remember if it was J or K when I was in high school I don't know if the rest of you had to do accelerated reader in high school but it became part of our grades like in 10th or 11th grade we had to take us we had to earn a certain number of points per quarter or whatever and so it's really easy to just put down a ton of you know decent but very procedural crime novels and then just get all your points that way and there were like there was a like a hint of sex and maybe romance, which when you're in tenth grade, like the illicitness of it was very exciting. So that's kind of where my history with the the series goes. Although I will have to say that I remembered literally nothing from this book. So the last fifteen years, I guess, have filled my brain with other things. Well, I'm gonna be honest. I read this book like three days ago, and I remember literally nothing from it. It just was, like, all in and then out. So if I don't see that much, it's because it did not stick with me, like, at all. But I, it was fine. I read it and I was like, this is fine. Immediately delete from memory. <laughs> I am actually listening to this one on audiobook, and I think this is the first of our books that I've listened to on audiobook mm. before, just because the audiobook was available from the library, but the actual book was not. And I might have to start doing this more because it's just the level of, it's kind of like listening to podcasts that I've already listened to in that I can sort of pay attention, but I can also tune out and not miss very much, um, which was great. It saved me a lot of time. I could do other things while I was doing this and um, I might have to embrace this method more in the future. Yeah, it's, well, and, and kind of like Renata said, like, I don't think I would necessarily, like, it's, they're, classify this as, like, you know, some horrible series or whatever, but it's just very bland, nondescript, 
which is funny because of the um, the sheer volume of description that is in the books. Like, it, like there were there were moments where I was like, "Is she going to keep describing everything she can see?" It was like death by exposition sometimes. But aside from that, I mean, like the story, it's it's there. The protagonist is, I, I'd say, she's likable. I like, you know, I like her. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I guess I just had not realized how long ago this series started. You know, we called it Long Lived, but it started in 1982 was when this book was published. So it's been, and she's through X now. Yeah. So my grandma was reading these before she was even a grandma. She was reading these when she was just a mom. (laughs) I mean, I'll assume she started reading when they first came out. Maybe she didn't. She could have. She, She did finally break the pattern with x though x is for nothing it's just x and i think that's a cop-out and i would have embraced x is for xylophone parentheses that was in a murder scene <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny because like i i read an interview with her when we were getting ready to do this and the reason or maybe it was on her wikipedia page and her explanation for not naming x was she was like well it's gonna be something like just like x for xenophobia or something and i was ah! like it's 2016. Like, you could have gone there. <laughs> yes. I would have read X's for xenophobia. <laughs> I think she said that, like, Z is slated to come out in, like, 2018 or something. Wow. So, you have time now if you, if you want to get on board and read currently 24 mystery novels. They're, they are there for the taking. <laughs> get on board the battered VW bug. It is slowly leaving the station. <laughs> um, I was saying before we started recording, too, that, like, I I feel like I don't have a ton to say about this because this is exactly the type of book that I would read in an airport. Um, it's not necessarily the sort of thing that I would pick up on my own. When I'm reading, like, mindless stuff, it tends to be more cozy mysteries than, like, action thrillers. Uh, but if I was in an airport and I needed to, like, buy a book to kill time because there was no Wi-Fi or whatever, I would absolutely buy this and enjoy it and read it. Um, and I, I do, because I do like a lot of, I like mysteries, I like crime procedurals, I like all sorts of stuff like that. And this was not too egregious, especially compared to Stephanie Plum, which we read mm-hmm. earlier this year, which was just a shit show. <laughs> this, was, this was fine. There was nothing in my mind wrong with this yeah i've mentioned before in the podcast that i don't generally like mysteries that much i never seek them out and i think i'm basically just like i'm not good at solving like it's linked i think because i don't read them i'm not good at solving them and then because i'm not good at it i don't like it so and i never like whenever i'm reading stuff like this i'm like i know i'm not gonna figure it out it's like i just don't even care and so it turns out that i much prefer stories where it's from the perspective of the criminals where it's like oh i see how you're doing this like like i get it which much more so for me actually i think this was fine like i didn't think there was that much wrong with it i didn't really like it because of that reason so like i actually enjoyed stephanie plum more than this i think even though stephanie plum was objectively worse and like more problematic but it was sort of like funnier on purpose Stephanie Plum and this is more I mean I kind of like I see where this is going for this kind of like hard-boiled like noir-ish thing but I just don't really like that thing that much 
Which yeah, is well, totally fair. Like, I I preferred having the protagonist be, like, confident to not knowing how to hold a gun the right way and giving the bad guys her purse with all of her oh, protective yeah. gear in it and all of that stuff that was going on. Um, but that is absolutely, like, a, a preference thing, not a, um, you know... Judgment I mean, if, if I were hiring one, I'm, I'm jumping ahead now because I know this is one of her would you rather's. If I were hiring a detective, though, like I would much rather hire. By the way, have we even said that Kinsey Mil- Milhone or Malone? I think it's Milhone. I think you pronounce the H. How'd they do in the audio about Kate? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Kinsey Milhone is our, our narrator and detective. Uh, I don't. I forget what I was gonna say. I think basically just that we hadn't said her name yet, and she's the main character. Why don't we get into what actually happened in this book, if we can remember to piece it together? <laughs> this book actually has like, I when I first started reading it, the first chapter was so bad that I was like, this is gonna be garbage. But really, after like the first five pages, it was fine. But the first five pages are not very well structured, especially as the opener to a series. It's very cliche. It's possible it was less cliche in the 80s, but it essentially opens with, like, my name is Kinsey Milhone, and I'm 32 years old, and I'm a private investigator, and I killed someone, and I live in a one-bedroom apartment, and, like... It's very, like, deliberately, like, oh, shocking, sort of, whatever. Um, I will say, I was looking at this, I was looking at this on Amazon, and there are, like, reviews like, oh, it's so cliche, and then a bunch of reviews from people like, you, like, replying to those saying, people say this is cliche, but it wasn't in 1982, and, like, you need to show respect for Sue Grafton. And, like, I wasn't (laughs) alive in 1982, so I can't speak to that, but I feel like there's probably some ring of truth to that, that this was maybe a little bit more fresh in 1982. Yeah, Yeah. well, and that's something, like, when I first started reading it, I double-checked the publication date because I knew that it had been the 80s, but I didn't know what part of the 80s. And so learning that it was that early that, you know, like, all of the events in the book that they're alluding to, like, the murder and everything, happened in the 70s. Yeah. And so that, like, there were a lot of things in there that I kind of rolled my eyes at, and then I was like, wait a second, I bet before there were 17 million police procedurals on TV rerunning at all times. Some of this stuff was not as, you know, pedestrian as it might seem now. And overall, I'm, I'm going to stop derailing in two seconds and like cake it back to saying the plot. Overall, I did not think this was terribly dated. I mean, there was stuff where like, I bet this, you know, it did feel fresher, but a lot of this felt pretty current with just like a few small technology things but I think because it wasn't trying to rely on technology or anything for the most part it mostly still feels pretty okay you're not constantly going like oh it's so 80s I would agree with that like aside from the technology things it didn't feel as egregiously 80s as and I'm we're gonna probably keep making this comparison as Stephanie Plum did 90s like you read five pages of Stephanie Plum and you're like yep this is the 90s And this felt very, I think because it felt so generic, it wasn't tied to a particular time period aside from the technological constraints. Um, But plot, right. Let's talk about what happened in this book. Um, So the book opens with Kinsey narrating and talking about how she, as we said, you know, she killed a person. She had never killed a person before. She was having a lot of strong feelings about it. And... 
going on from there to talk about what happened leading up to her killing someone. And what happened is a woman named Nikki came into her office. She's a private investigator. And Nikki had just gotten out of jail for the murder of her husband eight years prior. Kinsey recognizes her because it's a small town and everyone recognized her. And it was like the trial of the century and everyone knew about it. And essentially she says, look, I didn't kill my husband and I would like you to investigate because I want to find out who did and it's important to me. And Kinsey had always kind of felt like there wasn't enough evidence to really tie Nikki to the crime. So she's like, yeah, sure. Like, give me some time to think about it and I'll decide if I'm going to pursue your case. So she goes to the police to look at the files from the case eight years prior and they're hesitant to give her the files and when she gets them she finds out it's because there was another person who was killed the husband Lawrence was killed by taking an antihistamine with oleander in it crushed mm-hmm. oleander yeah um, which is a poison that was growing in their backyard and is all over southern california and a couple days after he died another person died that way who was related, He, she was um, the accountant or something for his law firm. And they had been trying to connect the two cases, but nothing ever came of it. Because uh, Lawrence was a terrible husband. Uh, Nikki was his second wife. He divorced his first wife and had a bazillion affairs. Nikki was one of the affairs and had a bazillion affairs during his marriage to Nikki as well. Everyone kind of knew that he was a philanderer and assumed that that was her motive for wanting to kill him. Whereas she was like, I just didn't fucking care anymore. Like, I knew he had been having affairs for a long time. Why would I suddenly decide to kill him? And Kinsey's like, yeah, that's a good point. So she decides she's going to investigate both Lawrence's murder and the murder of this girl from L.A. Libby? Yes, Libby. Libby. Libby something. Glass. So the first thing she does is go to Lawrence's former law partner. Uh, Lawrence was a divorce attorney, and his law partner was an estate lawyer named Charlie Ciscroni or something like that. And she talks to him about Lawrence and keeps, like, immediately is attracted to him and immediately is, like, flirting with him but kind of wants to deny it because she only, like, periodically feels the need to sleep with men. I mean, sleep with anyone, tragically, but um, to sleep with men. And she's like, "Mm, I don't really want to get entangled in this, but she can't help it. And he tells her that he had never met Libby before. He didn't understand why the two deaths would be connected. He felt a strong loyalty to Lawrence and, you know, assumed that Nikki did it and didn't really have any new information for her and kind of, like, brusquely gets her out of the office. And then from there... Is that when she goes to Vegas? Is before that, because he apologizes to her first. She does some more... Oh, she goes to Gwen next. Um, Gwen was Lawrence's first wife, who, when they divorced, he took her for everything, including the kids. He got all the money. He got custody of the kids. All she wanted was the kids. Uh, But he managed full custody and left her penniless. And she was able to turn her life around. She was very bitter for a long time. But now, like, she owns a dog grooming business and she's pretty successful and seems to be generally happy. 
and she says, you know, like, I don't think I know anything, but I'd be happy to help you. I'll help you, like, answer any questions that you need. And she is generally very receptive to talking to Kinsey. After that, Charlie contacts Kinsey again and says, look, I'm sorry that I blew you off. Like, let me make it up to you. I am just really protective of Lawrence because we were really close and I, you know, realized that he's dead now and there's nothing I can do to, like, protect his image. So I might as well be straight with you. And they flirt a lot again. By the way, the flirting is terrible. And (laughs) it's real, like, telling, not showing. I'm just like, he said it and I was so attracted to him and it was, like, so smoldering with sexuality and then I looked at my brief again, or like whatever. <laughs> yeah, which I feel like showing or telling, not showing, is like the number one like criticism of telling in this book. Is it's just like it's just constant description and not actually like you know. And I and I kind of get that in general for this kind of first person mystery because I was like, she's the detective, and she's like. You know, she is studying and just sort of, like, reporting what she sees. But then when it turns to the romance or whatever, it's like, ooh, like, maybe you could have switched it up a little bit somehow for this part of it. I don't know. (laughs) There are so many people in this book. I don't even remember. One of the... goes to L.A. for a while. One of the people she's investigating is the former receptionist for the law office, who everyone remembers as being, like, super beautiful and super hot, but not someone that he, like, even though both of his former wives were suspicious of her at first, like, it was very clear that he was not sleeping with her and not interested, and she never seemed to be doing any work and never, like, stayed late or helped out and was not a very good receptionist. So Kinsey figures there's something weird going on with that and finds out that she is in Vegas now uh, working as a blackjack dealer or a cocktail waitress. I think she's or a something. dealer. Something, you know, yeah. some Vegas job. They find out that the reason that he let her basically do whatever she wanted was not because he was having an affair with her, but because he had an affair with her mother and she found out. And this was basically like her black, she blackmailed him into giving her a job or something. That seems like the most uncomfortable type of blackmail. Like, let me be around you all the time and, and have to have us have to like interact with each other daily. Yeah. Can you blackmail (laughs) yourself into like a work from home position? (laughs) I can't actually remember why she gets murdered. Well, because because somebody saw her talking to Kinsey. And that's it? There wasn't any... She didn't, like, have any evidence that needs to be get ri- gotten rid of? Is that the one where, like, Kinsey accidentally slept through the appointment and she got killed? Yes. Yes. I think basically just implied that Kinsey was on the right track somehow... I now guess. that she's I don't poking was... around into the law firm business in general. Yeah. Anyway, she gets killed. Yeah, Kinsey is supposed to make an appointment with her. She accidentally sleeps through it. When she calls her to apologize, or when um, the woman calls her to say, like, where the fuck are you? She hears in the background someone break into the house and the line go dead. So she rushes over there, and when she gets there, she finds the woman's body. And then 
quickly leaves and calls 911 pretending to be a concerned neighbor because she doesn't want to be seen there and have to answer questions. Uh, While she's down in the general Vegas area, she also visits with the parents of the other person who got killed, Libby, um, who they've, like, saved all of her stuff and they, you know, are trying to preserve her memory. And one of the people who she learns a little bit more about is Libby's ex-boyfriend, Lyle. Who's a real winner. Yeah. They were high school sweethearts, and he was kind of, like, aimless and had no ambition. And they had broken up because she was having an affair with some hotshot lawyer from up further north. So they all assume immediately that that is clearly Lawrence. And um, I don't know uh, what else happens. Charlie calls a couple times while Kinsey is down in Southern California and Nevada. Um, is Las is Las Vegas where Arlette lives? No, that's LA. LA, okay. But that's that's like when she's that that is when she's visiting like Libby's family, I think. Because I want to talk about Arlette. Is yes. this the time it. to do so? Okay. Yes. So in, in one of these cities that Kinsey stays in, she's a regular at this, like, very seedy motel. I guess, actually, there's multiple seedy motels that she's a regular at. But this one is run by Arlette, who's, like, real fat. And Kinsey has, like, two pages of judgy narration about how fat she is. And then Arlette is, like... And, and this is, like, 1982, but she's, like, a fat rights activist, and she's, like, you know what, like, fat people don't get any any respect, and, you know, we deserve rights, too, and blah, 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 and, like, fat is beautiful, and Kinsey's just, like, lol, but, like, reading it now, it's, like, oh, no, Arlette sounds, like, pretty reasonable, even though I think she's <laughs> supposed to be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. And Kinsey's, like, classic concern troll. Like, aren't you worried about having a heart attack? <laughs> yeah. And then it's, like, the motel includes continental breakfast, which is jelly donuts. And uh, Kinsey's like, I love junk food, but I wouldn't eat a jelly donut. And I'm like, first of all, fuck you, Kinsey. And then Ar- <laughs> and then Kinsey's like, oh, uh, anyway, Arlette is eating all the donuts anyway, so there wouldn't even be one if I wanted one. Like, you think you're too good for a jelly donut, Kenzie? I hope you get murdered. <laughs> this took a well, turn. She's stuck around 24 books so far, so. Yeah, well, Z is going to be like, Arlette comes back and poisons a donut. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be like, yes. Um. So she meets with both of... Lawrence's kids from his first marriage to kind of like get some background on their father and what was going on around that time and is okay there was a thing I genuinely didn't understand and I did not care to go back and read but it was was this one one of the kids is death or is this somebody else's kids no it's it's Nikki's kid so it's his his other kid Uh, not these two from the first marriage well, when we get to that kid, I did not understand what he was doing with the scrapbook or, like, how that led to her cracking the case. Yeah. Books like this, I feel like, are really hard to summarize because the nature of it being a detective novel means that, like, lots of little things lead to other little things lead to big things. So in order to do a quick summary, like, you have to 
breeze over so much that it's hard to remember the nitty gritty of why things are happening, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of going back to the beginning where Renata was talking about like the type of mysteries that she likes a little bit better than others. Like I felt that one thing that was good about this book is that I didn't actually feel like it was asking you to guess who the killer was. I feel like it was leading you through the investigation alongside of her instead of trying to be like, have you guessed it yet? Have you guessed it yet? And that's one of the things that makes it hard to summarize is because you're constantly just like, you know, hitting the pavement with Kinsey and trying to like, just follow the next lead and just, especially the first couple of chapters, it's just like, okay, I have a list of people that I need to go talk to. So I'm going to have conversations with each of them type of a thing. Yeah, it's a lot of, like, I would say the bulk of the book is us going back and forth between the town that she lives in and L.A. and Vegas and, where like, where all these people are and driving and asking questions and getting answers. So forgive me if, if I'm kind of breezing through this, but it's hard to cover everything without covering every single little detail. So throughout all of this, while she's investigating, Charlie, Lawrence's former law partner, begins to romance her. He takes her out to dinner. They have the grossest sex scene ever. Mm. It's to kind of like rely on him and is kind of sharing some stuff with the case from him because he's like vaguely familiar with all of the players. And she eventually meets up with Nikki's kid, uh, who is deaf Colin. Yes. Yeah, so explain this to me. Oh, and also, I wasn't this when, okay, somebody else gives Kinsey a scrapbook of photos and is like, oh, if you're going to see Colin, will you give this to him? And I'm like, why would you trust a random private detective with this, like, important item to be delivered to your child other than for plot reasons? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, but it's it's Diane, who is one of Lawrence's kids from his first marriage, and she was very close to Colin, um, her stepbrother. So she, she gives her this scrapbook to bring to, and she does bring it to Nikki and Colin. And in the scrapbook, there is a picture of uh, Diane and her brother and her father and her mother at her middle school graduation, I think. Yeah. And Colin keeps pointing at... Grace, Diane's mother and Lawrence's first wife, indicating that he thinks that she's his grandmother or his his father's mother. And eventually it comes out because that was apparently like the last time that they met or something. And I think what, what it is, is it eventually comes out that there was another time when he was alone with Colin where... After they had gotten divorced, Grace and Lawrence had a brief affair and Colin saw her over one time being affectionate with him and because being affectionate with Lawrence and because she had gray hair, assumed that she was a grandmother. Yeah. Is I think what the logic behind it was. And because he was only a little kid at the time. He was like three years old. And for some reason, that's the only time he's ever interacted with her before. Um, But him saying that leads Kinsey to put together some pieces and realize that there was a time when he must have, when Colin must have seen her before and figures out eventually that they had been having the affair after their divorce when he was married to Nikki. 
and she kind of spontaneously confesses once Kinsey is like, I know you were having this affair. She's kind of like, I was, and I was so mad, and I was so angry that he was showing me all this passion he never showed when we were married, so I killed him. Yeah, so that, that solves that part of the crime. And then before, but she can't figure out how it's connected to the other, to the dead woman, Libby, because Grace had no idea who she was, and there was no connection between the two of them. And before she can investigate any further, uh, Grace is killed in a mysterious hit-and-run accident, like the next day, before she can even go to the cops and tell them what happened. Uh, So she's left trying to figure out how Grace could have, why Libby died, how the deaths are connected, because Grace you know, like we said, had no connection to her. And it occurs to her that everyone referred to her affair with Lawrence as that she was having an affair with a lawyer um, from their town. And she realizes when talking to one of Libby's former co-workers that Lawrence had very few dealings with her, actually. That the reason that they were hired was to deal with the estate law, the stuff that Charlie was in charge of. And she realizes that he was the one who killed her and that essentially he, Lawrence died by this weird method and he was like, great, like this is the perfect way to kill this other loose end that I have right now. And so there's like a big chase scene where he figures out that she knows that he was the murderer and he goes after her and all of this stuff and yeah. Yeah, and she is, like, hiding from him in an alley, and he is like, oh, don't you know, like, I care about you, and I would never hurt you, and she is, like, almost believes, or, like, his tone is almost convincing, but she still is holding her gun, and then, like, he finds her, and he's holding a knife, and she shoots him, and then, like, end of book. Yeah. It would probably be pretty good as a movie. Yes. It probably would be. And it's interesting, too, because it's like we can hardly remember what happened, but I feel like a lot of stuff happened. And there were a lot of really fun, like, little side characters, like Ruth. I really liked Ruth, like the old lady receptionist. Uh huh. Yeah, a lot of good receptionists. Because um, that was also yeah, Arlette's job, kind of. Yeah, it's just so weird because, like, there was actually a lot of things that happened, but by the end, you're just sort of like, oh, okay, they solved the mystery. Yeah. It's funny, too. I was going to bring this up. So, you know, I, I originally read these in high school, like I mentioned. And, you know, when you're 16, somebody who's 32 is double your age and seems like such a grown-up and everything. And in order to make her seem the way that she seemed to me back then like I had to upgrade her to her mid 40s because like it was hard for me to assume that she was like the age of a lot of my friends like (laughs) she just didn't seem like a 32 year old to me because she seemed like you know a hardened mid 40s type of a of a protagonist um so it's hard for me to like get her age right in my head (laughs) all right well I mean I guess that's pretty much this book like obviously there's some like clues or details or whatever that if you really care, you'll read the book. But, yeah, basically, Kinsey solves a mystery and kills a dude. Good for her. I think because there were, there wasn't any sort of, like, egregious worst bestsellerness, like, horrible, overwrought things that happened that made us laugh. There's just not as much 
to talk about, maybe? In addition to the fact that, like we said, you know, it's it's solving a mystery and going from clue to clue to clue with someone, which is really tedious to spell out. Yeah. So let's go into our dramatic readings. Sounds good. So Kate, we'll start with literally the beginning of the book. Yeah, like I said before, like, I really felt like reading these first few pages, actually, after I read them, um, I got off the train and Becca was at the bus stop, because uh, occasionally our commutes overlap, and I, like, ran up to her and I was like, I just started reading this book and it's so garbage, like, here's the opening, I can't believe I have to read the rest of this, and read her the first couple pages, and then, like, I, I think on the bus, I went back to reading on the bus to our house, and I was like, oh, actually, this isn't as bad as I thought. But the beginning's pretty bad. I almost wonder if her editor was like, hey, you gotta punch this up. Like, put in, like, a real, like, showy opening chapter, and then you can go back to the the book that you had written. Like, it, it feels yeah. out of place. Yeah. No, it really does, and it gives you a completely false sense of what you're in for. All right. So here is the beginning of this book. My name is Kinsey Milhone. I'm a private investigator licensed by the state of California. I'm 32 years old, twice divorced, no kids. The day before yesterday, I killed someone, and the fact weighs heavily on my mind. I'm a nice person, and I have a lot of friends. My apartment is small, but I like living in cramped spaces. I've lived in trailers most of my life, but lately they've been getting too elaborate for my taste. So now I live in one room, a bachelorette. I don't have pets, I don't have houseplants. I spend a lot of time on the road, and I don't like leaving things behind. Aside from the hazards of my profession, my life has always been ordinary, uneventful, and good. Killing someone feels odd to me, and I haven't quite sorted it through. I've already given a statement to the police, which I initialed page by page and then signed. I filled out a similar report for the office files. The language in both documents is neutral, the terminology oblique, and neither says quite enough. Nikki Fife first came to my office three weeks ago. I occupy one small corner of a large suite of offices that house the California Fidelity Insurance Company, for whom I once worked. Our connection is now rather loose. I do a certain number of investigations for them in exchange for two rooms with a separate entrance and a small balcony overlooking the main street of Santa Teresa. I have an answering service to pick up calls when I'm out, and I keep my own books. I don't earn a lot of money, but I make ends meet. So from there, like, it gets into the actual case and it, you know, we meet Nikki and she talks about why she wants to, but, like, those first two pages are just, like, a weird info dump. I don't know. Yeah. And I get that the, the you know, opening in the middle of something dramatic and then going back to explain it is a very popular trope, but it's also very played out now. But, like, like we were saying, maybe it was not played out in 1982, but... Um, yeah. Well, next up, Sarah's got another piece from pretty early on in the book. Uh, yeah, so this is, uh, a a little bit more of an insight into Kinsey as she tries to, um, I guess, make sure that you really know what she's about. So, this is after she meets, uh, after she goes to the police department to look into the case for the first time. By the time I got back to the office, it was 4.15 and I needed a drink. I got a bottle of Chablis out of my little refrigerator and applied the corkscrew. The two coffee mugs were still sitting on my desk. 
I rinsed out both and filled mine with wine tart enough to make me shudder ever so slightly. I went out onto the second floor balcony and looked down at State Street, which runs right up the middle of downtown Santa Teresa, eventually making a big curve to the left and turning into a street with another name. Even where I stood, there were Spanish tile and stucco arches and bougainvillea growing everywhere. Santa Teresa is the only town I ever heard of that made the main street narrower, planted trees instead of pulling them up, and constructed cunning telephone booths that looked like small confessionals. I propped myself up on the waist-high ledge and sipped my wine. I could smell the ocean, and I let my mind go blank, watching the pedestrians down below. I already knew that I would go to work for Nikki, but I needed just these few moments for myself before I turned my attention to the job to be done. At 5 o'clock, I went home, calling the service before I left. Of all the places I've lived in Santa Teresa, my current cubbyhole is the best. It's located on an unpretentious street that parallels the wide boulevard running along the beach. Most of the homes in the neighborhood are owned by retired folk, whose memories of the town go back to the days when it was all citrus groves and resort hotels. My landlord, Henry Pitts, is a former commercial baker who makes a living now, at the age of 81, by devising obnoxiously difficult crossword puzzles, which he likes to try out on me. He is also usually in the process of making mammoth batches of bread, which he leaves to rise in an old shaker cradle on the sun porch near my room. Henry trades bread and other baked goods to a nearby restaurant for his meals, and he has also, of late, become quite crafty about clipping coupons, declaring that on a good day he can buy $50 worth of groceries for $6.98. Somehow these shopping expeditions seem to net him pairs of pantyhose, which he gives to me. I am halfway in love with Henry Pitts. The room itself is 15 feet square, outfitted as living room, bedroom, kitchen, bathroom, closet, and laundry facility. Originally, this was Henry's garage, and I'm happy to say that it sports no stucco, red Spanish tile, or vines of any kind. It is made of aluminum siding and other wholly artificial products that are weather-resistant and never need paint. The architecture is almost completely nondescript. It is to this cozy den that I escape most days after work, and it was from here that I called Nikki and asked her to meet me for a drink. I don't think we mentioned Henry before. He's another one of those side characters we were talking about who's like, he's not in it that much, but he's pretty fun. I would assume he's a recurring character if Kinsey doesn't move. He is, and I think Con Dolan from the, um, from the, the police department and everything, like, you do, the book does kind of start to populate her cast of characters that'll continue to go on through the series. Yeah, so I liked him. And now for somebody I didn't like, we are moving on to our final dramatic reading, which is some of the some of the sexual tension between Kinsey and Charlie, who, in case you forgot, is the murderer. And I will be Kinsey and Kate will be Charlie, who pops up a little bit and they're in a car together. And here we go. Uh, Pops up a little bit as a pun. Because uh, of his dick. <laughs> we drove back to Santa Teresa, saying little. I was feeling mute again, not uncomfortable, but languid. As we approached the outskirts of town, he reached over and took my hand noncommittally. It felt like a low voltage current was suffusing my left side. He kept his left hand on the steering wheel. With his right hand, he he was carelessly, casually rubbing my fingers, his attitude inattentive. I was trying to be as casual as he, 
trying to pretend there may be some other way to interpret these smoldering sexual signals that made the air crackle between us and cause my mouth to go dry. What if I was wrong, I thought. What if I fell on the man like a dog on a bone, only to discover that his meaning was merely friendly, absent-minded, or impersonal? I couldn't think about anything because there was no sound between us, nothing said, not anything I could react to or fix on, no way to divert myself. He was making it hard to breathe. I felt like a glass rod being rubbed on silk. Out of the corner of my eye, I thought I saw his face turn toward me. I glanced at him. Hey, guess what we're going to do? Charlie shifted in his seat slightly and pressed my hand between his legs. A charge shot through me and I groaned involuntarily. Charlie laughed, a low, excited sound, and then he looked back at the road. Making love with Charlie was like being taken into a big, warm machine. Nothing was required of me. Like, Uh, think about your dream, like, your dream sex scene. Is it like being taken into a big machine, yes or no? (laughs) Is it nothing is required of you, so she just, like, sat there and let him, like, that does not sound great. That sounds kind of like, well, whatever, get it over with. Also, a glass rod being run across across silk just, like, puts me in the mind of all of the terrible fanfics that I've read that are, like, what is it? Velvet encased steel? Like, that's how Edward Cullen is frequently described. (laughs) Yeah, it's how, like, dicks in really bad fics are described. Yeah. Your classic case of fic dick. (laughs) Ooh, Charlie's got a bad case of thick dick. He's going to have to get that treated. (laughs) Well, he would if he weren't dead. (laughs) Anyway, are we ready to play some Would You Rather? Sure. I'll start. Would you rather hire Stephanie Plum or Kinsey Milhone for your person-finding needs? They have slightly different jobs, are they? Stephanie Plum is a bounty hunter and Kinsey's a private detective, but I feel like there's some overlap in there depending on what you're trying to do. Yeah, and I would definitely, uh, in case it wasn't clear for how much I've been bashing Stephanie Plum, I would definitely hire Kinsey. I feel like she would get things done um, much more competently and quickly. And, uh, you know, I imagine that's what I want out of my person finding needs. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I would rather read a book about Stephanie Plum, and I would rather hang out with Stephanie Plum, but on a professional level, I'm going with Kinsey. Yeah, I think I'm probably on Team Kinsey as well, just because, like, I mean, I guess she's probably solved at least 24 cases by now. Out of 24. I mean, that's my assumption. That's true. So. Well, although, honestly, I mean, Stephanie is in her 20s, and, like, presumably she's solved all those cases, just probably more like kind of by accident in her case. I don't know. <laughs> Based yeah. on the one that we read. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess the other thing is I would totally hire Kinsey because I feel like with the technological advances we've had over the past 34 years, she's probably an even better detective and she probably doesn't have to drive her beat up car all over creation quite as much anymore. Mm-hmm. So you'd be saving on those saving on that mileage when, when you're paying her fee. That's important. All right. Would you rather have a smoldering momentary affair with a man who turns out to be a murderer or fall in love with your 81-year-old landlord for realsies? 
I mean, as long as he doesn't murder me, that would be fine. It could be a good story to tell later. Probably get a good podcast out of it. Right? So I'm going to go with that. I don't know. I feel like if you fall in love with your 81-year-old landlord for real, you're just headed for heartbreak. Yeah. Because, I mean, he can't have that much time left in him. But if you... If the man who turns out to be a murderer, at least you got a good night out of it. Well, maybe you did. A night where you didn't have to do any work. <laughs> a night like being in a big machine. <laughs> um, on the other hand, if you fall in love with the landlord, uh, probably like when he dies, he would leave your place to you and then you would become a landlord. So that's pretty cool. You get baked bread and you can have crossword dates. I'm actually talking myself into the 81-year-old landlord. Yeah, I think I'm going to go landlord. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can always get your physical needs met yeah. elsewhere. I feel like also like sleeping with Henry, like not much is required of you either way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I think I'm going to go landlord. Last up, would you rather divorce your gross husband and get nothing or be wrongfully convicted of your gross husband's murder and go to jail for eight years, but get the beach house once you get out? I am leaning towards the beach house because eight years isn't that long. And in addition to inheriting the beach house after um, her husband died, he had also put a whole bunch of their other property under her name for, I guess, like, tax reasons or something. So she had a couple houses, and, you know, real estate is good, and, you know, who, eight years isn't that long. So, yeah, I I would do that. It also depends on if you are getting a public, a private eye to clear your name or not, because it's hard out there living as a felon, even if you didn't actually commit the murder. So that's something else to keep in mind. Um, another thing, if we're going off the book, like not only did, um, the first wife not get any property, but she didn't get custody of her kids at all, which I imagine if you had kids, you would mostly like want to see them. (laughs) I don't know. If, if I lost custody of Duarte, I'd be extremely upset about it. So, but if I went to jail for eight years, oh shit. I wouldn't be able to see Duarte at all. Oh, God. I can't handle either of these, Um, (laughs) to be honest. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of leaning towards prison, too, because, you know, as a white lady in the 80s, like, you probably wouldn't have gone to, like, I don't know what the prison sitch would have been. Oh, I guess there's, like, no Netflix. You could read a lot of books in eight years, though. And then when you get out, you've got all this money and everything else to kind of rebuild your life from. Whereas the other way, you kind of have nothing, even though you do come up with a pretty cool dog grooming business. But uh, yeah, I think I'm probably I'm probably going for the wrongfully accused, actually. All right. And now we'll move on to our reader's advisory, where we will suggest things to read or watch instead of or in addition to A is for Alibi. I have to admit, a lot of the things I came up with were things to watch, just because, like I said, I watch a lot of crime procedurals. The number one thing that I thought of while reading this, um, well, I'll say there are two major things. The first one was um, the comic Alias and the television series that it was turned into, Jessica Jones. 
as uh, another kind of like hard-boiled female detective private eye. Uh, it's from her point of view. She's like tough, but like wants justice. I get it. Sarcastic. Like, yeah. And then the other thing was Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries and the Franny Fisher books. So another TV book combination. But again, like a, a strong independent woman solving mysteries and being sassy and sarcastic and fun. For both of us, it looks like there's actually really a lot of overlap between our reader's advisory for this and for Stephanie Plum, which is kind of interesting because they're different books, but it's basically just like the kinds of mysteries that we like versus the kinds of mysteries that these are. Although I I do think Jessica Jones is probably a good comparison. Yeah. Yeah, like my first instinct, kind of like what Kate said, was just like solidly made police procedurals. Because, like, you know, when you watch a lot of even, like, I wrote down Castle, the early seasons, but even some of the others that we're going to mention, like, yeah, you get an off episode, sometimes it's a little bit boring, but it goes down nicely and it occupies your brain, and I kind of feel like that's what this book series does. But I also mentioned, you know, if you like, if you like mysteries that are a little bit, I'd say Agatha Christie is a little bit more cerebral, where you are trying to sort of piece it together as it happens, um, but there's also there's always the Miss Marple um, or the Hercule Poirot books by Agatha Christie with a, you know, a crime solving protagonist and, and things like that. Um, this is not like actually good reader's advisory, but this plot of being poisoned with like a household plant just kept making me think of Breaking Bad. And I kept getting distracted by like how mad I was at this particular plot line in Breaking Bad. So if you haven't watched Breaking Bad yet, you probably are so sick of people telling you it's so good, it's so good. But you guys, it's like so good. So I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna put in another little plug for Breaking Bad being real good. That's all. Yeah, I mean, like Renata said, a lot of my mystery readers advisory stays pretty similar because I mostly read mystery books. When I read mystery books, they're mostly mystery books led by women. Which is why all the crossover between this and Stephanie Plum, I would imagine. So, yeah. The other thing that it did make me think of is, like, the suspense novels by, like, Mary Higgins Clark. I think they're, I think they, they're written towards a similar audience. Um, and I know I've read a couple of the Mary Higgins Clark books, and they'll definitely scratch this same itch um, if that was something you're into. I know that anyone who's a longtime listener to the podcast knows that we're a part of the cult of Nora Roberts, yes. but uh, under the J.D. Robb name, she writes a, a the In-Death series, which is kind of like crime mystery solving, and there's a couple, and they're good. You should read those. Yeah, I have, I have one more recommendation that I don't think I mentioned during Stephanie Plum, because I don't think I'd read it at this point. Um, as I mentioned, I don't normally like mysteries i don't usually seek them out unless they've come really highly recommended for another reason or like there's something drawing me to them and so in this case uh study in charlotte was written by uh, a friend of mine Brittany cavallero and i read it and i didn't want to tell her i was reading it because i was like what if i don't like it because it's a mystery but i did actually really like it um because for me, like, what keeps me going in any kind of mystery or, like, thing that I don't, or, like, fantasy, like, things that I don't necessarily gravitate toward, if it's got really strong characters, I'll keep going and I'll be into it. And so, A Study in Charlotte, it's 
set in a modern day boarding school, but the premise is that there are these two teenagers who are modern day descendants of, um, like, that Sherlock Holmes and Watson are, like, actual real people. And so Charlotte Holmes is, like, Sherlock's great granddaughter or something like that. I don't know. But it is, you know, she is real kind of hard boiled or whatever. She's very bitter and very analytical and it's kind of funny kind of a good mystery um so i'd recommend it even if you don't really like mysteries uh yeah so we'll have those and some other stuff up on our website worstbestsellers.com under reader's advisory for this episode and now we'll move on to our candy pairing where we will suggest candies to accompany this book um, mine is sort of something I mentioned before. I don't remember what episode, but I have mentioned Dove Promises for Murder, which is um, a game I like to play in my office. I like to keep Dove Promises there, and then, um, which are, if you don't know, those chocolates where when you open it up, it has a like inspirational saying on the wrapper. But then I like to add for murder at the end, like instead of saying in bed. So obviously... That, you know, murder and murder. But then also, again, these are books I really associate with my grandma. And she always had milk chocolate Dove Promises in her fancy little candy bowl. So um, a shout out to my grandma and a shout out to murder is my candy pairing. (laughs) Um, I actually, I kind of went a little bit grandma-y as well. The the Starlight Spearmint candies. So, you know, the green, the green little spearmints like, instead of the red peppermints because mm-hmm. i always feel like they're older than you realize they are like they've been around your house for a long time and you sort of forgot about them and like they're not your favorite candy but it's still really easy to eat a bunch of them in a similar vein i went with the random candy in my parents candy dish my mom is one of those people who puts out like seasonal thematic candy dishes like shaped like a pumpkin or a Christmas tree or a heart or whatever and fills it with whatever random candy is around the house. And I'm not a huge candy person, but sometimes when I'm at my parents' house and I'm feeling lazy and I'm in the living room, I'll just eat whatever's in there and it's fine, like it's not bad and I will eat it. But it's not necessarily something I would go seeking out on my own or sit down and be like, I'm going to eat the candy in the candy dish. So, yeah. Hooray. All right. Um, now we will put down the candy dish and play The Rock Paper Snicked, where Kate will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book. And I'll say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book. And Sarah will say which, uh, which would most improve the book or choose paper, which is to leave the book as is. If Dwayne The Rock Johnson were in this book, he'd have been a police detective that was marginally more interested in helping Kinsey solve the case than the actual police were. He'd be understanding and encouraging enough that Kinsey would fill him in on more details of the case as it happened and not just flagrantly lie to him like she did to the actual police in the book a couple times. And together they could pool their resources so they would be able to solve the whole case much sooner and hopefully before Kinsey's gross weird date with Charlie. If Wolverine were in this book, he would have been in Las Vegas at the same time as Kinsey, just like hanging out and drinking beer alone and probably like waiting for somebody to meet up with him and launch some kind of spin-off comic event. But in the meantime, he would happen to overhear Sharon's impending murder and save her. I feel like if The Rock was involved and they solved the whole thing sooner, like before the weird date, fewer people would ha- would die. 
Like, I know that Wolverine would definitely save Sharon, Mm -hmm. but uh, maybe The Rock would save Sharon and, well, and then a couple of murderers, I guess. (laughs) I I just felt the worst about Sharon. Yeah, hers was rough. I think I'm going with The Rock. I think I I like The Rock as as a useful detective. I I would watch that movie. Right? All right. And now we will move on to the moral of the story. Mine is a repeated moral, but you know what? People have not taken this moral to heart. It has not been uh, put into place yet. And so I will just say again, ban men. Yep. (laughs) Um, My moral of the story is actually more of a question, which is how did an investigation even ever happen before the Internet? And my moral of the story is, when you're solving a murder, be sure to ask for clarification of vague descriptors of the players. Uh, I feel like things would have finished a lot more quickly if, you know, they had actually specified which of the lawyers from, you know, Santa Teresa Libby had been having an affair with, so. Yeah, so true. All right, now we'll move on to Dorte's Corner, where my precious baby angel Dorte will share his opinions on the book. You know what, Dorte? I agree with you. I did not care for Kinsey's blanket uh, opposition to pets, but I did kind of respect that she was open about disliking dogs. Because I feel like so often when characters don't like dogs, it's like a red flag that they're a terrible person. And I feel like Kinsey like, just didn't like dogs. And I feel like that's okay. And I have to disagree with you. I understand why you think it would be better if the attack geese were instead attack cats. But the idea of attack geese was so delightful to me that uh, I really think that if you change them to cats, you'd be detracting from the book a little bit. Holy shit. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Dorte and Kate. Um, I We did not mention the attackies, I don't think, even though I was so excited about them. My notes about them are in all caps. But Nikki had... It was Nikki, right? I have to scroll back up to my all caps notes. She had trained geese to attack people in the beach house, in like the yard of her beach house to keep kids away. And so whenever she wants to get into her house, she just like brings bread with her and distracts them with it so she can get in. And it was like fucking amazing. Like one of the best parts of this book. Legit. (laughs) So I'm glad we we brought that up. All right. uh, Thanks, Dorote. I appreciate your close read. And uh, do any humans have any closing thoughts about this book? Not really. No, I don't think so. Yeah, it was fine. It's like not as good as Breaking Bad, but it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, if you're not already, you can follow us on Twitter. We are Worst Bestseller with no S because S is for silence and Sue Grafton needed that S for her book. Uh, You can also like us on Facebook where we're Worst Bestsellers spelled and pronounced normally. Uh, also, goodreads.com, we are on there. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. And if you do, please rate and review us. Uh, it pops us up in the charts a little bit and makes it easier for people to find us. If you don't rate and review us, we'll have to sick our attack geese on you, unfortunately. Um, we have also recently launched a Patreon account where you can uh, support us with recurring monthly donations. 
At the time we're recording this, we actually have not yet launched our Patreon, so we don't know how it's going, even though at the time you're listening to this, it's been up for two weeks. So (laughs) hopefully people have donated by now, and if so, thank you so much. If no one has, then that's a little depressing, and we'll encourage you to go ahead and just just do that right now so we don't feel so foolish about it. Yes. <laughs> oh, and you can get to that from our website, worstbestsellers.com, or I believe it's patreon.com slash worstbestsellers, but that's like more things to type, so just go to our website straight up. Yes. Finally, you can follow me personally on Twitter at Renata Snacks. Uh, I've been locked for a while because I was job hunting. I've recently unlocked. So if you were like waiting to follow me because you felt weird about it, like come on in. The party's open over at my Twitter. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at 14 across. And you can follow me on Twitter at at kicked the stairs. All right. We will be back in two weeks with Dark World by Zach Baggins. So you might, or is it Baggins? How the fuck do you say his Baggins. name? Baggins. Baggins. Baggins is. Uh, who you may know as one of the ghost adventurers aka the ed hardy boys i love that so much (laughs) we call them the ghost bro adventurers but the ed hardy boys is so much better yeah uh credit for that to my friend joe sanka local journalist this is the end of the podcast goodbye Your classic case of thick dick.